Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's funny when we talk about this being like the most American idea of all time, drive a car around on the moon. <laughs> it's the most manifest destiny thing of all time. The people behind it were not born American. Hello, I'm Dallas Campbell and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast series exploring the history and the stories behind our inventions. Now then, in this episode, we are going back 50 odd years to my happy place, the Apollo moon landings, an extraordinary period of history for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that it was an amazing period of innovation and invention, fueled by the politics, the single challenge of getting to the moon, a fierce deadline, vast budgets, and a collection of some of the finest minds in the world all working together to make it happen. I think it's best summed up that ethos behind that challenge by Kennedy's famous Rice Stadium 1962 speech. You know, the one that we choose to go to the moon in this decade, that speech, which everyone knows the famous bit. But there's a paragraph in that speech that I really think is worth repeating because it's a lovely bit of political writing apart from anything else. Kennedy says, and I won't do the Boston accent, I'll spare you that, but he says... If I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket, more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food and survival, on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that of the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this and do it right, and do it first, before this decade is out, then we must be bold. Absolutely brilliant bit of political writing. One of those many, many world-changing innovations that he's talking about was the development of the very first off-planet electric car, the Lunar Rover, which saw service on the last three Apollo missions, an off-road vehicle that extended the reach of the astronauts on the lunar surface and really pushed the engineering beyond what was considered possible even by Apollo standards. But how did they do it and who was responsible? Well, in this episode, I'm joined by car journalist and podcast host Eddie Alterman, a Detroit native and true car guru, to discuss the rover's conception, the engineering that went into it, and its place in the pantheon of classic cars. <laughs> Thank you. 
Eddie, great to have you on the show. Congratulations on your show, the imaginatively titled Car Show. <laughs> yeah, it's more creative than the title. There's something really refreshing about titles like that. Just, it's a car show about cars. And actually, I'm really excited about this because obviously this is a podcast about inventions. And we haven't done one on cars yet. This is going to be our first one. And actually, you've made this point before because I've heard you talk about it. In a way, the lunar rover, the Apollo lunar rovers, there have been other lunar rovers. You sort of talk about it as being the very first off-road electric vehicle, which I'd never really thought of it like that. Here we are talking about electric vehicles all the time. And it's like, wow, well, you know, early 1970s. We got three of those on the moon. <laughs> right. It's definitely the first off-road, I'm sorry, off-planet electric vehicle. And, you know, the history of electric vehicles goes way, way back. You know, one of the first Porsches was actually an electric vehicle. In the early part of the 20th century, Dr. Porsche created a vehicle with electric motors in the wheel hubs. And before the internal combustion engine took hold as sort of the prime mover technology, it was sort of a jump ball. You know, there were steam engine cars, there were electric cars, but Henry Ford sort of made the internal combustion engine stick. This is a whole other podcast. Listen, I love talking about anything Apollo, so I could bore you for Britain talking about Apollo. And actually, a lot of Apollo focuses on Apollo 11. And actually, I always feel a bit sad for the later Apollo missions because everyone forgets what we call the J missions, particularly 15, 16 and 17, which did all this amazing science work and everyone seems to not talk about them enough. You know, Dallas, we talked to author Earl Swift, who wrote a great book about the lunar rovers. It's called Across the Airless Wilds. Isn't that a great title? Oh, and the book is just so well written and so beautifully executed. And Earl, you know, he speaks in complete paragraphs and he was a joy to interview. But he makes this point that every mission prior to 15, 16, 17, they were all sort of testing the equipment. And the real science was done on 15, 16, 17, because the rovers allowed them to expand the radius of exploration. And the whole point of getting up to the moon was to interrogate the surface. What's it made of? Is there water? You know, all that stuff. So the lunar rovers allowed us to do that, to really explore. And they covered an area the size of Manhattan. Whereas before, like when you had to, you know, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong walking around in their suits, they could only get so far. That's it. And we're talking a matter of just a few yards. I think it was 60 odd yards. I think they, 65, 65 yards. 65 yards they could get from the lunar module on the moon. I was on a conspiracy website and one of their favorite we didn't go to the moon things was they take the lunar rover and they're like, look at the lunar rover. How could, there's no possible way that could have gone on the moon. And then I like to spend many hours because I'm sad <laughs> trying to explain to them how the lunar rover works. I say it's an unlikely looking thing. It's actually quite familiar. It's got four wheels and it's got a battery right. on the front and it's got a trunk at the back where you put your samples and that's right 236 volt batteries yeah. and, i mean it originally was going to be this it's your basic car it's your car and i think that's why the gm version won out over the competing proposals because it was so familiar and it was so car-like and you know when you're 250,000 miles away you don't you know you don't want to be playing with new stuff if you can help it i mean there's enough new stuff going on there well, that's the thing i mean getting to the moon apollo is really difficult kennedy's famous speech we're going to build a rocket made of materials we've not yet invented you know apollo happens and then they think and oh, we're going to put a car on the moon as well it almost seems like you know just like <laughs> the most american thing ever right <laughs> but just tell us the story so we needed a car on the moon so as you say we could travel further but why those three missions why not earlier and who developed the car? Like, where did it start from? Where did the concept come from? The concept came actually from Werner von Braun, 
the Nazi who was sort of spirited out of Germany after the war. There are a lot of Nazis that came to America and relocated within our space program as part of Operation Paperclip, which was a way to take some of the intellectual property away from the Nazis, sort of our war prize as Americans. And Brits didn't get quite the same level. Of- no, we just got bombed by Werner von Braun's V2 rockets during the war. But actually, it's interesting that that rocket technology, that knowledge that the Germans had, that particular uh, Hermann We applied it to the space program. Yeah, there yeah. you go. No, I've been to the Churchill War Rooms, and to think about the whole kind of camp of war planners sitting in central London, just waiting to get annihilated is incredible and tells you about the courage that existed back then. But Werner von Braun had this idea that we could go to space and we could travel around in these space pods. And he did a story for Collier's Magazine, Collier's Weekly, which was a popular sort of general interest magazine of the time. And he talked about it then in the 50s. And General Motors Santa Barbara Labs started working on it. The Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA started working on it. Working on cars, you know, the idea of how do we drive on the moon? Well, there were a bunch of different concepts. Some were very, very small. Some were larger, more kind of habitable, like RVs <laughs> for the moon. But the final design was sort of like, okay, we don't have a lot of space. We don't have a lot of weight. Every gram we send up to the moon costs us untold thousands of dollars. And we need to make it small, compact, and useful for driving and collecting samples. So there were a couple proposals very far down the line. There are two guys who really worked very hard on making the thing happen. There's, they were also not Americans. And it's funny when we talk about this being like the most American idea of all time, you know, drive a car around on the moon. <laughs> it's like the most manifest destiny thing of all time. The people behind it were not born Americans. You know, they were Werner von Braun and a guy named Greg Becker and a guy named Frenick Pavlix who worked in the GM Santa Barbara Technology Labs. And They worked very, very hard on figuring out what the soil composition was like. They figured out what kind of wheels we'd need to traverse the moon. So that's why you see those beautiful piano wire stainless steel wheels. It's worth pointing out, actually, at this point, that mid-60s, early 60s, we had no idea what the lunar surface... Well, we had some ideas, but we could only understand what we thought the lunar surface was just by looking at it. We didn't have any samples or anything at that point, did we? Exactly. It wasn't until Apollo 11 that we knew what it was. And by then, you know, we were already working on figuring out how to get a car built for it. And so some people of the day, and this was disproven, but they thought that it was like a tail-like substance. Trying to land a lunar module on the moon was pure folly because it would just sink into this soft sand. That turned out not to be true. You could land on it. The group at GM really followed through with a couple of concepts. And the first one was to have two lunar modules going up to the moon on two different rockets. So two rockets, gosh. Two rockets, one for the astronauts. Double the price. (laughs) One for the car and double the price, right. And then in 1967, I believe, the budget got slashed massively. They couldn't do two rockets. They could only do one rocket. So they had to figure out how to repackage the lunar rover into a space in the one lunar module. And now the first design that the guys at GM in Santa Barbara came up with had six wheels, all-wheel drive, this sort of insect-like articulated body. But that wasn't going to fit in the belly of the lunar module. So they had to rethink the whole thing. And that's when we went down to four wheels and that kind of unique origami folding system. Just for our listeners, paint a picture of like where 
the lunar rover would be stowed. If they can imagine the kind of spider-like lunar module on the surface of the moon with the legs and the ladder and the kind of gold foil around it. Because that buggy, you know, you've got two people in it. It's the size of a mini or probably bigger. It's the size of a car. It's a car. How the hell do you get that? Space was at a total premium. So it couldn't go in the passenger compartment. It had to go in the kind of luggage space. So it was on the outside and they kind of winch it down. Right. And then they unfold it and they didn't know if it would unfold. (laughs) There's so many unknowns and it's just an incredible feat of faith, incredible engineering. And I think a lot of people say there's no way that we landed on the moon and there's no way there are cars on the moon, but there are three cars on the moon. There's no way that's all happened because it just seems so impossibly hard. It just seems like, how could you do that? But they did it. And if you want to see for yourself, you can go to, I think, the University of Arizona website and they have pictures of the moon and the tire tracks and everything. Yeah, the lunar reconnaissance orbit is great. But again, if you're a conspiracy theorist and you point that out, they're just like, no, that's all fake. It's all Photoshop. Stanley Kubrick did it. There's no winning. What are the design features about it that made it suitable for driving on this unknown surface? We talked about it being one of the first electric vehicles. We didn't have battery technology like we have now. What kind of batteries did it have? And how did the wheels work? There were two 36-volt batteries. Like car batteries, like kind of lead-acid batteries. Not the lithium-ion batteries we have in our laptops or in our Teslas. So lead-acid batteries, exactly. Not rechargeable. And that was the power plant of the thing. Luckily, it was very lightweight, you know, because you were in one-sixth gravity. The mass was on your side. And, you know, the big problem with electric vehicles now is mass. But it's interesting to think about what would have happened had battery technology in cars, you know, had Apollo continued and battery technology in cars been transferred from the space program to the road. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, actually. You know, you think about kind of computing power and actually Apollo is, you know, directly responsible for the miniaturization of computers. You know, the Apollo guidance computer was really the thing that kind of beat the Russians to the moon, you know, being able to get a computer the size of a house down to the size of a shoebox. And then from Apollo, we did a kind of sort of 10 year leap into the future in terms of computing technology and, and solid state microchips, but not batteries. <laughs> no, it's sort of it was a bit of a dead end. You know, one wonders what could have happened had we applied that same sort of technology transfer that happened with the downsizing of chips and everything to batteries. I think we'd certainly be a lot further along than we are now. You know, we're just at sort of mile one of the electric vehicle marathon right now here on Earth. But yeah, so battery powered, because there are no gas stations up there. (laughs) You don't want to carry more fuel if you can help it. And the thing that really made the final design work were the wheels. And those wheels were very tightly knit stainless steel piano wire reinforced with titanium hoops inside. And then you had composite chevron, sort of like tire treads on the outside to dig into stuff. Here's the physics question for you. Why couldn't you just have a normal off-road car tire? It would pop. (laughs) So you couldn't have compressed air up there. And you didn't want to deal with that in a lander module. You didn't want to have possibility of fire with lead-acid batteries. But you don't want to carry raw fuel or maybe even a fuel cell up there. You didn't want to carry any kind of compressed air in the tires. You just didn't want to do any of that. One more thing about the battery that's interesting is you have crazy thermal environment up there. You know, you're going from 250 degrees Fahrenheit during the day to negative 250 degrees because there's no atmosphere. So that would have been an incredible proving ground for battery technology because one of the real weak points of automotive batteries is their thermal sensitivity. So that's another 
area where more research and advancement there, if Apollo had continued, would have helped us tremendously. But Apollo was just doomed from a political aspect. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, I bring you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Why was Sitting Bull such a remarkable leader? What was Napoleon's greatest ever battle? How did the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turn the Cold War hot? And who dropped the world's largest nuclear bomb on the Arctic? Through interviews with world-leading historians, policy experts, and the veterans who served, we find the answers to these questions and so much more. So come and join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front lines of military history. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let me just ask, obviously, Apollo was such a massive technical challenge. And I know you've spoken to the people who developed the lunar rover. How difficult a job was it compared to the rest of Apollo, building a rocket, building a computer, designing a spacesuit? Where does the rover fit into that, I wonder? I think it's a little bit closer to the easy end, you know, (laughs) because it was a car and we kind of knew how to build those. Of course, in 1969, GM was building, you know, Oldsmobile Vista Cruisers and Camaros and they were not Mercedes S-classes. But it was not the same thing as planning with slide rules, by the way, not with tremendous computing power, how to intercept the orbiter, how to land a thing on the moon, all those things that you see in great movies like Hidden Figures. All that stuff, just the most advanced science of the time, the hardest stuff we'd ever done in America as a country, and doing it basically blind, you know. That's why they took such a step-by-step approach with these missions from Apollo 11, 12, obviously how 13 was super problematic, to get to the point where we could actually do real science on the moon. It's worth saying as well, so 15, 16, and 17 took the lunar rover with them. There was a Apollo 18 and 19, 20 as well? I can't remember now. We were going to keep going with Apollo, and then after 17, it was all canned. It was all deemed too expensive, and huge budget cuts meant we couldn't do it again. I wonder, it'd be interesting to know sort of how the lunar rover would have improved. As a car journalist, you, as someone who does a car show, can you give us a kind of review, to the best of your knowledge, about how the lunar rover... Did because there's some interesting stories about it working and it working not so well. 
Well, yeah. I mean, when Apollo 15 landed on the moon and they sort of unfurled the vehicle. It's just on YouTube, by the way. You can, if you Google, you know, lunar rover on moon unfurl or something, you'll see how they do it. They kind of winch it down. It's kind of... Yeah, and sort of undo it. And the steering didn't work. There was a glitch in the steering. So... Yeah, how did it steer? Was it electric? Was it kind of mechanical steering? I believe so. I think it was mechanical steering. I have to check that. But the steering, well, that doesn't make sense. If it was purely mechanical... I think there was an electrical fault with the steering from memory. Yeah, there was an electrical fault with the steering, as I recall. And the same thing happened on Apollo 16 Mm. as well. But it quickly sort of righted itself. I believe it was the rear steering that didn't work in both occasions. But on Apollo 16, something even worse happened where... The astronaut John Young. Young Duke Massively, yes, that's Apollo 16. (laughs) So astronaut Young was walking by the rover and he had a little pickaxe on the outside of his suit. And the pickaxe took the rear fender off of the rover. And now that doesn't sound like a huge deal, okay? But when they went to try to drive it, it kicked up this huge rooster tail of moon dust, which is really fine, but also really, really abrasive. And this stuff was getting in everywhere. It was getting into the O-rings on their suits. It was getting into the electronics and heating the electronics up and frying the electronics of the rover up. So this is a huge, huge problem. They couldn't go anywhere because this thing was just sending dust in their way. So they had to figure out a fix on the moon 250,000 miles from home. And so think about how cool-headed these guys were. They went back into the lunar module, grabbed some geological survey maps and some duct tape, and they (laughs) turned the maps into a fender. And just gaffer tapes it on. Yeah, reaffixed it. You know, here's why I want to go back to the moon. I want to go back to the moon so I can see all this stuff. I want to put a big rope around the Apollo sites, and I want to go, look, that's where John Young put the cover of a map and gaffer taped it on to make a fender for a... Isn't that amazing? What I find amazing is that, you know, they built these rovers. They couldn't test them. You know, normally if you release a car, you're going to test it and test and test it. Other Apollo hardware we could test. We could even test the lunar module on Apollo 9. We tested it in low Earth orbit and we knew things work. There was no way of testing the design for the lunar rover at all. There's no way to know whether those piano wire kind of woven wheels were going to work. We didn't know what the surface was going to be like and how the dust would behave. That's right. We couldn't drive the final thing because it was designed for one-sixth gravity. So it could be very, very light. And they wanted to keep mass down on the module to the lowest extent possible. So you couldn't get an Earth mass astronaut into a one-sixth gravity, super lightweight thing because they'd crush it. So you couldn't drive it. And, you know, Frenick and Pavlix tested all kinds of soils and really invented the whole concept of terra mechanics, as we discussed earlier. And every off-roader that's been built owes a debt to those guys for the work they did on tracked and wheeled vehicles and soil and how they'd work. Can you see a sort of direct link from the development of the Lunar Rover, you know, in the mid-60s? through to off-roaders now. Oh, yeah. And I love that you said it was the first electric (laughs) off-roader. Because that's really what it was. I say that, you know, the Russians put Lunacod 1 on the moon, which was an uncrewed rover. If you haven't seen it, it's the craziest looking thing. I think it's got like eight wheels and it looks like some kind of giant insect. It's a bonkers looking thing. It doesn't really count as an off-road vehicle. And this was driven, right? You know, just astonishing. The fact that conjuring... All the powers of our imagination, we come up with a car. (laughs) I love that. And so they drove the car. How far did the car take them around the landing site? So we went from sort of 65 
yards from just walking around Armstrong and Aldrin and Alan Bean and all the sort of Apollo astronauts of those era, 11, 12, 14, 65 yards. Suddenly, how far could we go? And would you not worry about your battery running out a bit like you do with your Tesla? If you're driving away from the lunar module, are you thinking, crikey, we better not go too far, otherwise we're going to be stuffed? So these guys, the radius of Apollo 14 was about half a mile. That's just on foot. Yeah, just on foot. And that's hard work. It's hard work walking in those suits, by the way. It's not just a stroll walking on the moon. It's jumping about. You're raising your body temperature. It's hard work. You have limited oxygen. And so you really needed something mechanical to help you. So when Dave Scott and Jim Irwin got into that rover on on Apollo 15, they covered more in the first 13 minutes driving it. They weren't going 60 miles an hour. They're going like eight miles an hour. But they covered more ground in the first 13 minutes of that mission than all previous previous Apollo missions combined. And also they got some amazing stuff. There's a famous rock, the Genesis rock, I think, was 15. Genesis rock. Yeah, but they went a total of 56 miles on those three missions. 56 miles driving around the moon. You know, and that's where they found that Genesis rock, which because the surface is pristine, they were able to say like, okay, here's the composition of the moon. This anorthosite rock that they found, which was bright white, they were able to say like, here's what the moon's made of, you know. And here's what the surface is like. And here's where we think these are meteorites had struck it. And so, you know, they were able to really do the real science. So we've got the first off-planet, off-road electric vehicle invented by, remind me of the names. Who would you give credit to? Well, I think it was the folks down south in Alabama and the people in Santa Barbara. But I think Greg Becker and Frenick Pavlix were really the chief architects of this thing. There we go. Since then, we've now had this quantum leap in electric car technology. We're going back to the moon, Project Artemis, which is the next thing. I cross fingers we're going back to the moon, maybe in the next sort of five years or so. Presumably, we're going to be going there for longer periods. We're going to have to take a car with us, aren't we? Oh, yeah. There's going to be cars up there. First, they're talking about autonomous vehicles. You know, the Mars rovers that are sort of remote control, the jet propulsion, you know, they control those things via remote control and they move very, very slowly. These would be autonomous vehicles initially, but then manned. And they're talking about using the moon, Artemis's, as a permanent habitable station for further exploration of planets as a base to go to Mars. I'm excited about it. And actually, if you looked at some of the prototype of future lunar vehicles, there was one that came out, I forget what it was called, around about 2008. And they look very much like the Werner von Braun concept vehicles from, you know, the 1950s and 1960s. Much more sort of habitable type vehicles, which would be pressurized. It's worth remembering the lunar rover, it's just open. It's like a kind of Jeep. There's no cover. You've got to wear your spacesuit. The atmosphere is in your suit, right? Or I mean, the breathable air is in your suit. But these would be a little bit more like Matt Damon in The Martian. Again, for Apollo, those cars didn't have to last very long. They only had to last for a matter of hours, really. A bit like the spacesuits. You know, their life expectancy was hours, days. If we go back to the moon, we're going to have to learn how to kind of repair these things and build things that are going to last and new technologies that are going to be able to keep them going. Right. The batteries have to cycle through this crazy thermal environment over and over again. We're going to have to recharge them. It's a little bit like, you know, how Formula One cars are so purpose-built, not just for the race, but the various tracks, you know, and they're just so finely calibrated to their mission. That's how the first ones were. That's how the Lunar Rover 1, 2, and 3 were. And they were all the same car, 
really. They didn't change really at all. But now you're talking about taking that Formula One car that's been finely calibrated to a unique environment and extending its life and saying, okay, now Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes AMG has to do the carpool pickup. (laughs) So it becomes a much harder challenge, but I think we're up to it. And I think in this case with Artemis, we are really going to get great learnings from, you know, the environment on the moon. I think it's really, really exciting. One of the big challenges as well, battery technology, of course, in such an extreme environment is going to be hard. We've talked a lot about the lunar dust and how difficult it is. I actually have a jar of lunar dust. Let's see it. Are you serious? Yeah, hold on one second. Okay, okay. Oh, I can't wait to see it. This is a jar of lunar dust. Where'd you get it? Well, I say lunar dust. What it is, it's stuff called, I don't know if I hold it up to the camera. I don't want to get it on my computer because it will break it. Yeah, It's A1 simulant. This came from NASA. This is a simulant lunar dust, which they make exactly the specifications of lunar dust. So they figure out what lunar dust is and they make it and they use it to test things like rovers and everything else and well that makes perfect sense can we center it in order to make habitations and that kind of stuff anyway i've got a pot of it so if anyone wants to see what lunar dust looks like even though this didn't actually come from the moon if it did come from the moon i would be arrested (laughs) and (laughs) spend a long time in jail because lunar dust is probably the most valuable stuff on earth i suspect and it's kept under very very tight controls occasionally bits of lunar dust come up on auctions that were stuck onto bits of tape and what have you but it's an amazing stuff and as you say it's very very fine it's like a flower baking flower but incredibly abrasive because of course there's no weathering on the moon so all the particles don't get weathered like they do on earth so everything remains incredibly sharp and things like cars do not like this stuff. No, no erosion. Anyway, it's great stuff. Don't get it on your laptop. Oh, man, that's fantastic. You know, I'm glad you didn't get it on a dark web. <laughs> no, no, this is perfectly legit, my legit moon dust. Hey, listen, it's been great talking. We could talk for hours about this. I love how knowledgeable you are about all this, Dallas. It's fantastic. Not specifically about the lunar rover, but I've had a few conversations about it. And just as a car person, where do you think those three lunar rovers that are up there on the moon, where do they rank in the history of amazing vehicles or important vehicles? Are they somewhere at the top? I mean, we don't really talk about them when we talk about cars. And I always want to say, no, 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 those three cars that are up there on the moon right now, they're pretty important. Eh, They're right at the top for me. You know, there are... Very, very significant cars here on Earth. The Ford Quadricycle, the Benz Patton Wagon, which is really sort of the first car. It had a tiller and all that. The Model T, super important. The Beetle, super important. The Mustang, super important. I think all of them sort of pale (laughs) in comparison in some way to what these lunar rovers represent because they are not just cars. They are exploration devices. And with these lunar rovers, we said that going to the moon wasn't enough. We'd have to keep going. You know, they've gone further than any man or woman has ever gone on any kind of surface. They landed with the lunar module and then they kept driving, right? And that's incredible. You know, I say this in the podcast, they were the moonshots moonshot. That's a good place to pause. Eddie, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Come on again and talk about the invention of something else, another type of car. There's so much I know we can talk about in the automotive industry and automotive history. It'll be great to have you back and good luck with the show. Thank you so much, Dan. I can remember it. Car show, it's called. Go look it up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you so much. It was wonderful being with you. Great. 
Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening today. Thank you very much for your company. We have new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday, so make sure you check those out and make sure you listen to all the other episodes that we've done so far in the series. If you want more Eddie, and why wouldn't you want more Eddie? You can find his podcast called Car Show from our friends at Pushkin Industries, and you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Now, remember, if you've got a story of invention or innovation that you'd like me to cover, something you're interested in, something you'd like me to explore, then get in touch with me on Twitter or stop me in the street. Or if you've got a favourite story that you'd like me to recount, then get in touch too. I'd love to hear from you. And I look forward to your company again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.